Hello and welcome to another edition of Wander. I've got to be honest, this one shook me. It really did. I really enjoyed speaking to Stephen, but it wasn't easy. He didn't make his answers answers. They were explanations. They were thoughts. They were ideas. But not often do they really feel like answers. And uh, I loved it. I don't know. I really enjoyed speaking with him. I really enjoyed the way that he talks. This is also the first episode that before recording this introduction, I had to listen to the entire interview again just to kind of decide what to say. I'm still not sure I'm saying exactly what I should when it comes to introducing Stephen Jenkinson. He is the founder of Orphan Wisdom. It is a school. It is a place for you to understand his thoughts and his ideas. He's got two books. He's got a recording of poems, and he's got an album. His first book, Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity in the Soul, is about his time in the death trade and about how we should approach death. His second book, which one is the one that we'll speak about mostly in this podcast, is about what's called Come of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble. And it's, well, it's about finding elders. Who are elders? What does an elder mean to our lives? But once again, the answers are not easy. And the questions themselves are incredibly important. There's a point in this interview today where he he references um, Marshall McLuhan and that the medium is the message when we talk about cell phones and the internet. But I think this applies to him as well. That not necessarily understanding everything he says is the most important part. But him and understanding him or trying to understand him might be the most important part. Uh, Did that make sense? Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. Maybe I just want to make you think. Who knows? I don't know, man. Steven Jenkinson, he was super cool to talk to. Super interesting to listen to. And a message all in himself. So I'm interested for you to hear this today. And I want to know, please, for any episode, send me your feedback on it. But I'd really like to know what you thought of this one. He's going on tour, uh, depending on when you listen to this, very soon, or it's already happened. Who knows when you listen to this episode. But I hope that you listen to this episode if you're in any place that he's going to be before he's there. So that you're not, after listening to the podcast, very disappointed that you missed out on this show. He's got two tours going uh, in the next little bit. So end of April and May, he's going to be in Australia and New Zealand. And through May and June... He's going to be in the UK and Ireland. The 
Australian tours called Oceana Come of Age Tour, which is focused on this book, which is uh, all about elderhood. And then he's got Night of Grief and Mystery Tour through UK and Ireland. And that's going to be focused on the album that he's put out. And it's going to include um, musicians uh, and the band that he has with him. Uh, Gregory, uh, the guy, the guy's name is Gregory Hoskins who I really need to dig deeper into his catalog after listening to Nights of Grief and Mystery because it's actually quite good. I'm actually um, going to play one of the songs from that album before we get into the interview. So right after my little introduction is going to be a song for about five minutes and then we'll get right into the interview with Stephen Jenkinson. And I hope that you enjoy all of it because I did immensely. And once again... I'll say this before we get into it. Let me know what you thought. I'd really like to hear your feedback on this. Anyway, this is probably the longest intro I've ever done for one of these episodes. So let's get to it. Here we have it. This is Stephen Jenkinson. He is many things. He's got a master's degree from Harvard University in theology and one from the University of Toronto in social work. He spent many years working in hospice, or as he likes to call it, the death trade, helping people with the transition to whatever comes afterwards. And uh, just that much description really kind of dumbs it down too much. He has two books, uh, book on tape, audio book of poems, and he has an album out right now. He's got a film made about him called Grief Walker, which is currently being toured and will be released. Without further ado, Stephen Jenkinson. Welcome to Wander with Andrew Wilcox. I went through the proper channels for the very first time. Got myself a visa and all of that, you know, for what? For this. And you come to you know, a silent stage, nobody knows what you're going to do, and you barely do yourself. And from that very unpromising beginning, you start carving in the air. I mean, and, you know, you don't know what you're going to say, I don't know what I'm going to play. And I don't know what I'm going to... I don't know how or when or if. When we start reaching for each other, that, that we can find each other. It's the strangest thing. They granted me a visa and fully documented me in order to perform cognitive dissonance on the general public. So, that's what I understand Nights of Grief and Mystery to be. Cognitive dissonance for everyone. Welcome, friends. 
for friends we may soon be. Friends are forged on a dark road, heading out of town. We're headed there now. And I welcome you to this cosmic constant of ours, the mystery days. Welcome to this exhortation of the ages. Welcome to that only single glory of your life that cannot age, that cannot fall down, that cannot wither. Welcome to that plea from all of your unsuspected kin trudging the lost nation road, even now. We're modern. God knows we are. We're modern and we're homeless and we are confused by freedom. And so we've left them to themselves, or to each other, or to God, as we ourselves seem to have been left, they say. Allow me to welcome you to the dust, the dust of uncertainty, and that stilled gaggle of opinion and of faith that is the ending of days. And welcome to your one true love that was wrangled from all those promises, all those betrayals, and all that octane of your younger days. Welcome to the catastrophe, to that old road for going down, for slipping into the mystery days, plaited and braided for you by those who came before, whose wonder, wonder now made a path through the easy terrors and through the boredom without end into life, who loved being alive as much as any of us here now, and who died accordingly, and who angled not for Neverland, but for now.
Stephen, where I'd like to start with you is how do you define elderhood? Well, you know, I've become less foolish as I've gotten older, so I would never do that. You know, define it in a kind of a, mm-hmm. um, a restricted, kind of straight-jacketed, it's this, it's not that, it couldn't be otherwise kind of thing. But I could give you some of what I understand to be the kind of salient features, the feathers on the bird, so to speak. Yeah. You say. Yeah, well, in no particular order, but the big one that occurs to me is I get a lot of unsolicited collegial uh, email, which is to say a lot of people without a lot of um, rumination I figure I'm, quote, on their side or I I take their cause or I'm, I'm their guy. Mm-hmm. Um, usually that doesn't work out beyond about 10 minutes of exposure and then I'm I'm the enemy or the antichrist or oh, geez. something like that. And the reason I mention this is because very frequently people will say, well, I'm an elder too. They'll say this. And so that's the first salient feature of elderhood is you'd never declare that. You'd never claim it. Mm-hmm. You'd never overly seek it out. And it's not just that it's unseemly as a kind of self-aggrandizing posture, but more importantly, I think the actual mechanics of elderhood are something along these lines. Elderhood is, <coughs> excuse me, is confirm, conferred upon you by people who would have it so or wish that it were so or need it to be so or are in some way in harm's way and um, for the moment at least uh, employing you in that function. So there's the second aspect. First mm-hmm. of all, You'd never claim it for yourself. And second of all, it's not an identity anyway. It's certainly not a question of personality or character type. Or I think elderhood, first and foremost, it should be understood as a verb and not as a noun or an adjective. And if you put it that way, then you, then you get the realization that it's very site-specific, meaning um, the, the, the actual sort of um, wrinkles of elderhood are a pure and and faithful consequence of the time in which it appears. So you could say that times of trouble, like the time that I think we're in now, they they give rise to the elderhood that they themselves require, which is why you'd never really want to generalize on the on the particulars so much. And that's why I'm I, I seem to be at some level avoiding the formulaic answer and suggesting to you instead that elderhood is a child of its time. And so it's a kind of seismic register of, uh, of the torments and the travails of the slights and the sorrows and the, um, the gross oversights and the psychic poverties of, of the times. And we have those in spades. And by that measure, um, you would think that if there's enough trouble, there'd be enough elders. I'm not quite saying that trouble makes elders. I'm saying that the troubles of the time make the marching orders mm-hmm. for elderhood, and it's still up for grabs whether or not anyone's willing to march. Would you say that technology, uh, as it stands today, social media and those types of things, are they what has created these uh, harrowing times that we're currently in? Oh, no, but they're, um, they're a vector, all right. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't give them nearly that kind of credit and, and shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> but you could say something closer to this, 
that um, there is a kind of empty etiquette that social media, which is a gross misnomer for what it is, it's anti-social media mm -hmm. is what it actually is. But anyway, if I use the vernacular of the day, that social media is fundamentally responsible, I think, for the current wave of delegitimizing um, the particulars of how we actually meet and are with each other and how we sustain contact and conversation. And, and by with that, I mean this, um, you know, the Americans in particular, but not only Americans, have elevated the notion of intimacy to a kind of spiritual mandate that the closer, the more, the most, the more immediate, uh, the better. And, you know, that, that's an inheritance from the sixties, frankly. And if you just look around for a while and ask yourself, how's it working out so far yeah. to have the instant karma, instant intimacy, instant gratification, instant contact, unfettered, untrammeled, unmediated, and all the other pseudo democracies that uh, the social media, uh, uh, represents itself to be you you just look around and and one of the direct consequences is that there's no labored overness to these matters these are these are matters of kind of synaptic immediacy you could call them and it seems to me that in days of yore and i'm going to sound like a dinosaur here um in days of yore there was a high degree of of um admiration uh and um uh, obligation uh, heaped on encounter, you know, uh, the, the social encounter. And these things were undertaken, I would say, in, um, uh, in a slow, measured, deliberate, even errant style. That is to say that they were, they were undertaken as if many a thing was at stake and that they should properly be done slowly. And our way of coming to know each other is properly slow and hesitant and this doesn't indicate anything in the matter of, of a kind of sociopathic mistrust of the stranger. That's what you have now. Mm -hmm. the, the strange immediacy of the internet is, induces a kind of sociopathic fundamental mistrust of who's out there. And one of the aspects of the mistrust now is the utter unwillingness to learn the otherness of another person. And to go instead with a kind of an assumed sameness. And that's what the actual technology induces in us, I think. If we all have the same smartphone, what a joke of a phrase that is. But if we do have all the same smartphone, we're starting at the same place, whether we're in, in Cairo or Khartoum or Kansas. Like it's, quote, it's all the same. And this, yeah. is, this is the great victory of the... Um, the vendors of all these things yeah and we're, it's, we're it's the ultimate globalization that that the younger people claim to be in deep opposition to but uh, when it suits them like in the example i'm talking about yeah. now then suddenly globalization is god's idea of a good time yeah we're 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 okay with it when it's been sold to us the right way but we're not when it hasn't and it seems that we are, are very accepting of the feeling inclusive when it comes to a one piece of technology but it, it it's also incredibly shallow because our conversations become in 12 characters in one line and and that lack of depth leaves us all a little hollower i believe oh yeah i'd agree with you completely and and push it a step further and say <clears throat> 
the technology is the apparition that we are, quote, in the same place and that we've earned the capacity, that we've labored over the capacity to meet, you see. And, and instead, it starts with the notion that the meat is the easiest part. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, human history obviously suggests otherwise, suggests that meeting is a deliberate affair, you know, and it's a it's a prolonged affair. And you would need several meetings to meet someone, never mind to enter into something like courtship. And I don't mean that only in the narrow sort of romantic sense mm -hmm. of courtship, but the, the courtship of mutuality. You know, the fact that we both have a smartphone, the truth of the matter means very little about who we are to each other. But this has become shorthand for being a, a global but frankly corporate citizen instead yeah the 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 depth of our tribe has become very shallow even though the size of it has become very large well i i you we're just amening each other here now yeah, i'd yeah. say yeah i'd say but i i'm really loath to use the word tribe to describe that scenario yeah. and say wouldn't it be something if we could actually reacquire some capacity to be tribal mm -hmm by which I don't mean clannish. I mean to faithfully occupy the particular of the corner of the world granted to you and to do it faithfully and to, and to encounter someone else who's doing the same thing about their corner of the world and not be in any way fundamentally unhinged, undone, or having to undo the differences between you. As uh, Leonard Cohen, our patron saint of the Orphan Wisdom School and a national living treasure no longer quite alive, as he once was, said about these matters. He said, look, every real culture, he might have used the word society, but mm -hmm. every real culture, its fundamental capacity is to recognize the legitimacy of other real cultures. That is an act of a culturedness, you could say. And the, the attempt instead to make the same out of difference is the fearfulness around difference. And I think that's what this technology aids and abets is a deep mistrust of anybody who doesn't have a cell phone. You could go further <coughs> and observe this about um, the old existential days in the post-Second War period, especially in France, which we have so much to be grateful for now, intellectually these mm -hmm. days, deconstructionism and the rest. But um, I think it was Sartre, it was Camus, one of the two, it might have been Camus who's credited with the notion, as he put it, Hell is other people. That's what he called it. And after the war, I guess I guess so. But now, hell is other people who don't have a smartphone. That's what it's come to. It's not really an improvement, you know. And I don't think we know any more about each other by virtue of this instant access. And um, people who are listening might be wondering, gee, what has this got to do with, quote, elderhood? Uh, the ostensible uh, purpose of us talking right now. My answer would be, well, maybe it's the function of elderhood in a time of instant communication to be neither instant, instant or communicable. Well, but my question then is, can this social media, can this technology be used as a way to seek out elders? Is that possible? Well, um, wouldn't it be something? Uh, but then we'd be ignoring Marshall McLuhan altogether, another, another one of our great mm -hmm. achievements in this country. 
whose whose cogent observation uh, remains truer now than when he said it. Of course, you know the one I'm thinking the of. Medium is the message. That the, medium, that the medium is what carries the thing. It's not the content. If we take that uh, and imagine it one step down the road towards the elderhood you're talking about, you know, it seems to me that the labor involved in seeking out elders is the part that young people have to play in the conjuring of elderhood in their midst. Mm-hmm. So that, that deserves at least one more sentence. So let's see what I can do about yeah. it. What I'm suggesting is that when I said earlier that it's a, it's, you don't get any style points for declaring yourself an elder. I would go further and say it is not in the generation of elderhood to have the capacity to self-appoint or mutually designate each other as elders. That's, that's the activities room in an old folks home, frankly. <laughs> and it has, has no business in the understanding of, of the status of elderhood. Elders are made by virtue of the willingness, often against considerable odds and virtually no evidence or proof that this is a good idea, the willingness of a younger generation to seek out elders when there seems precious little reason to do it, that willingness and the labored overness of acting on that probably is the signal feature of elderhood appearing. The the obligation of older people is to proceed as if that kid could materialize in the driveway. Do I think <clears throat> um, kids um, using this technology, do I think it's the same thing and as the labor I'm talking about? Probably not. Probably, if it's easy to press send, you're probably not doing what you think you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you're do, if you're doing a, a Google search for elder, <laughs> that you're doing that instead of looking for them, is the way I put it. And elders have no business being on the internet anyway, never mind having a sign and a website. And I incriminate myself when I say this, um, a website declaring um, their, um, their uh, how should I put it, um, their skills and abilities in this regard. Now, the truth is that while I do have a website, there's nothing in there that declares any particular abilities that I have at all. Mm-hmm. So, so there, fortunately, there's no claims there, uh, which I can be hoisted on my own petard as I did it. But um, I mean, that's, that's style, right? I have no business declaring what I may or may not be capable of. This is yet to be determined according to each circumstance or in this case, uh, each interview. And so how then does an individual, because I watched the trailer for uh, Come of Age and I, I, I saw myself in the audience that you were speaking to in, in, in the video that I saw, and I see a lot of young people coming at the time of coming into adulthood or just beginning adulthood, you can see in their faces that they are looking for something in the form of an elder, even if they've never used that term before. How is the best way for somebody to seek out that type of individual? Well, you know, I'm not the formula guy. And, uh, you know, it's a res- it's a respectful question and it deserves to be addressed. But this is one way to do it is to say it's pr- there probably and properly is no formula. There's no how to in this matter. But you could you could cobble together a sense of approach by disqualifying the bulk of the currently available 
and currently authorized ways of getting what you want. See, that's the first order of business, man, is that elder has no obligation being what you want. You know, I got a letter uh, not that long ago. Somebody was deeply disappointed in me because I wasn't, quote, the elder they're looking for. <laughs> and, and, you know, while I understand the, the, the thrust of the corrective surgery that she was trying to perform, the truth of the matter is <clears throat> that she's seeking out elders in a way that's informed by their absence, not by their presence. And this is an enormous idea. So if you grant me a, a minute or so, I'll see if I can mm-hmm. elaborate it for you. The notion of this come from when I was working in the death trade for years. One of the things I saw is that the death phobic culture, which among other things granted me my employment through a hospital, um, had ways of engaging dying that were diabolically clever. And it went like this. The common notion is that a death phobic culture refuses to talk about death. That's a complete nonsense. That's not how it works. The way it works is a death phobic culture engages death absolutely and fairly routinely and uh, in a sense transparently. But here's how they do it. <coughs> Excuse me, I have a little infirmity that can, turns into a cough from time to time today. Uh, it works like this. So you're trying to contend with people's fear of dying, right? And so that you, uh, you insinuate into their lives various professional mandates and psychotherapeutic measures and when all else fails, um, hallucinogenic measures today, that's what's coming next. And all of these are designed to contend with your death phobia and your utter horrendous mortal dread or the wretched anxiety that I saw. Each one of these solutions maintains and keeps intact the death phobia it's presuming to solve. And why is that? Because it's a solution that's, that's generated by a death phobic culture. What do you think it's going to be? It's... Um, What's the parallel? I mean, if your hands, if you've got charcoal over your hands, everything you touch, you will darken. You can't do anything about that until you clean your hands off. Well, that's what I mean. A death phobic culture generates solutions to dying, which maintain the death phobia while claiming to do something about it. So if you take that understanding, apply it to the question you've asked me, I'm suggesting to you that young people who are disappointed with certain older people in their midst, while the disappointment in and of itself is understandable, it's not their judgment in these matters, is not a matter of wisdom finally taking hold. Why? Because the way that they seek elders, but more importantly, their criteria for the elderhood, they presume they would recognize if they saw it, comes from what? Comes from an elder-free time and place. That's what? So what would you reasonably expect? How would it work? The answer is people who don't know what an elder looks like looking for that kind of elder. And, and diabolically, there's a lot of older people as uninformed by these realities as younger people are who are more than willing to fit the bill now mm-hmm. and to call themselves elders in print and you know, advertise themselves as such and rites of passage, you know, industry is out there, as you're probably aware. And, uh, and all of these things are an attribute of this ragged affair that I'm describing, where <clears throat> the absence of the thing you seek becomes how you seek it. 
I think uh, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think it would be tough to um, process for a lot of people in today's age because we're so focused on the me and what we see and what we uh, want and what we perceive. I think there it really would be a struggle in that for us to even be able to uh, accept and process some of the things that you just said. Do you find that in some of your interactions? <laughs> some of my interactions? Some of them? That, that would be great if it was some of them. Yeah. No, listen, I was just in uh, Mexico on a kind of pulmonary rehab for the last three months or so. And I was recognized maybe a dozen times down mm -hmm. there, just on the street and so yeah. forth. And when I was, um, it was a, a cumbersome and often painful sort of social moment where people are proceeding as if they quote, know you mm -hmm. because they've seen you in a, in, in a, in an interview situation or something of this kind. And so there's an instant assumption of familiarity. Yeah. And when it when it's not borne out by the actual encounter, the degree of sort of estrangement and disappointment is uh, deepens by many degrees, and it's quite it's quite sad to see it, you know. So, am, do I found myself, um, how should I put this, kind of apprehended in a generally um, uh, tolerant sort of way? No, not really. And the lion's share of the reason, I think, is because though I'm speaking plain English, mm -hmm. I mean, you, you know every word I'm saying. You don't have to look any of them up. Um, I know those kind of words, so, is, so do you. But th there's no merit in being able to confound people with your vocabulary. No. But there's something about the way I string them together that confounds people's desire to have the list, to have the five steps, the eight stages, the 12 iterations, the wrinkles on the forehead of the divine made palpable and discernible, and you can count them, and, and so on. And, you know, I, I don't think that adult realities conform to the insistence on formulating everything in, in some form of redemptive problem-solving gesture. I mean, the, the, the mysteries of life are mysterious, first and foremost, and their mystery compounds the more you learn about them. And that's what grown-ups know. Grown-ups, it seems to me at least, don't come to mystery demanding that it submit to the known categories. It, it confounds your familiarities, you see. So, uh, so when, when an encounter with me replicates that arrangement, there's often a lot of frustration because why don't I just say what I mean? Well, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, but why? How come what you mean doesn't instantly translate? <coughs> excuse me, into uh, into my take on things. And the answer is well, because you're asking the question in a way that's not informed by the answers that you seek. That's why, and I'm answering you from a different place, and it doesn't make me in any way a superior being. I should say that clearly. All it means is I've labored over these things pretty faithfully in the last couple of decades in particular. And I was obliged to do that, again, from working in the death trade in Ontario, wherein I had to learn to craft a language where the realities of dying would appear instead of being 
you know, sent to the sort of four corners of the earth and being banished, which is the way most of the re rehabilitative language is inflicted upon these people. In other words, the language that, okay, I, I could say it perhaps better this way. I was assistant professor at a medical school, which is absolutely confounding and a, and a sign of the end times for sure. But I was, and in there, I became fairly familiar with the curriculum as it's imposed upon medical students. And one of the things that should absolutely confound you is this. Of course, their technical knowledge was extraordinary. Um, but when I asked them, what instrument will you most often employ during the course of your work with dying people? Not just dying people, but certainly with them. Which instrument will you turn to many times over before you'll turn to any other one? And they're looking in their sort of toolkit, right? Stethoscope? No. Uh, chemotherapy? Maybe, but probably not. What is it? And, I, and then I would point to my tongue. And I'd say, that's what you'll resort to. And how much training have you had in the use of your tongue? And they'd all look at me absolutely blankly. Because the answer was virtually none. Now, if, if, you, if you fixed a car based on not knowing how to use your hands... See what I'm saying? Yeah, well, absolutely. It's virtually the same. So what I tried to do as a compensatory gesture in those days was find a language where the realities of dying and the realities that dying people had to live, they could actually hear represented in the language. And nobody asked me to do this, including not the dying people either, but I, it was my self-appointed task. And I'm simply taking that alertness to language and applying it now to the question of elderhood and suggesting to you that there's, there's an elder uh, syntax. How's that? It's just not a vocabulary, but there's, a, there's an elder devotion to language. Maybe I could put it this way. A kind of almost religious or, or, or monastic uh, willingness to apply yourself with great discipline to this skill that has been entrusted to you called conjuring a world with the language and uh i mean i set myself that task every time i'm in in an encounter like what you and i are in now and and come to it as if i've never spoken to you before because mm -hmm. in this case it's true and also because i think both of us and more importantly uh the people that we might be stumbling into the the lives of inadvertently we have to earn the the right to be inside their lives for a brief period mm -hmm. of time. And the way we do it, I think, is to hold ourselves to a remarkable standard of, of eloquence and real sustained and confounded inquiry about things. And that does not permit you to submit, you know, anything to the five steps and the 12 stages and here's how you fix it and here's how everything will get better. And, and it's so simple, you know, how come we're not there yet? And, and well, the answer is because it's not simple. Simple solutions are for solution junkies. That's methadone. Mm -hmm. And what you and I are talking about is the poverty that gives rise to the addiction of wanting to be sure and wanting to feel secure before you do the work of learning the poverties that delivered you to these profound insecurities in the first place. Wow. I dig that, man. I'm not going to lie to you. I really like everything you just said. Um how did you end up in the death trade? <laughs> well, you know, 
there's going to be a film coming out pretty soon. Um, that's a film about the uh, grief and mystery tour and the band mm. and so on done by Ian McKenzie. And I've seen the next to last iteration of it. It's pretty good. And, you know, I wish I could watch it for the first time, but I was on the inside of it. So it's the way it goes. Mm -hmm. But um, somewhere in the, towards the beginning, he asked me a question, not dissimilar to that. And I said something in the order of, you know, if you speak with any authority about from whence your life comes or how it took the particular shape that it did, either you're trafficking in an illusion that you seem to enjoy or you weren't there, which is to say, you know, that you're on the receiving end of the life that you're granted. Mm -hmm. Certainly not on the commanding end of the thing at all, right? So I didn't even know there was a thing called the death trade, and it's certainly not called it then, and it's not called it now. They have a lot of lovely euphemisms for it, but death trade is a perfectly legitimate description of the, the affair. And it's, it's simple, and it's confoundingly simple. I uh, was asked to join the uh, staff of a hospital I know myself well enough to know that I don't play well in the sandbox with others. I'm not a consensus building guy and all the rest. So, so what for, what's the point? Life's too short. doesn't matter how much they pay you, but this would be a prescription for misery on all sides. Right. It's the same reason they didn't let me into to, uh, the, the white collar program in divinity school. Cause I'd never been to church, which I thought was a, a minor detail, but they thought it was a fairly important obstacle and they didn't let me in and now <clears throat> every once in a while a religious organization will have me come and teach them something or other and i get to stand in front of the church and say well you wouldn't have me then for free and now you got to pay to have me so god is great i think <laughs> but anyway um yeah i didn't know there was such a thing as the death trade and a, a woman said look you don't have to join the the staff or anything it can be a one-off thing, a group of men. Recently had somebody died on them, kind of going out of their minds in some way. Um, the, the hospital staff, most of whom are women, really unnerved by these guys, don't know what to do with them, afraid of being anywhere near them, never mind speaking to them. Why don't you take them off their hands? That was literally how it began. And so I sat in a room with these guys in the, in the hospital library and uh, tried to figure out what the hell I was possibly going to be able to do for them, you see. And somewhere in there, I realized that they were enormously skilled with anger, which will come as no shock to any woman listening. Mm -hmm. uh, the men tend to be shocked by that realization, but the women not at all. And uh, as good as they were with anger, which I am not discrediting that, I'm calling it a skill. You know, there are times when anger is absolutely mandatory and your, your affinity with it, and your skillfulness with it uh, is the difference between, you know, extraordinary disaster and social catastrophe when you're good with it and war when you're not, that kind of thing. And, um, but they weren't any good with sadness. And it turned out that the anger was a kind of cover story for the sadness that was more than undoing with them. That's what we kind of discovered together in the third week. I distinctly remember it. And they, they subsequently called it sad school, what we were doing. And they were coming to learn sadness, which you could never sell that shit door to door. But, but that's the way it worked. And it was supposed to stop in six weeks. And it lasted 18 months at their insistence. And, and somewhere in there, the hospital staff caught wind of what I was doing. And one macabre thing led to the next. And before you knew it, 
I was in charge of all non-medical services for the largest palliative care or organization in the country. Now, you cannot simply explain that by crediting my abilities. There's some other strange mystery that dragged me along and that turned into my life. And uh, that only happened in my, let me see, mid to late 40s. And I would say you can't go into that line of work any younger because every day is a perfect storm of, of mayhem and, 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 and the death phobia I was just describing earlier. And if you don't have a lot of ballast in the tank, I mean, you, you couldn't last a week without your head coming off its shoulders. So I was lucky. You know, I had a lot of life experience and it, it held me in very, very good stead. And I'd been with some extraordinary uh, uh, sort of storytellers and teachers. And uh, uh, I was the beneficiary of it all. And, and somewhere in there, I guess you could say it, it claimed, properly claimed me. And by the time I was with my first person who was dying, I hope this doesn't sound Im immodest, but mm -hmm. I knew what I was there to do, though I had never done it. Uh, I didn't know it like, as if to say I didn't have any doubt. What I did have was a sense of informed purpose that had nothing to do with my feelings. Or, or my sense of personal adequacy. It really didn't. It was something that was wired into these people's living circumstance, what they possibly needed, what they would never ask for, and something about what I was capable of. All of those things found each other and turned into the great celebration of the third act of my life, which I'm now in the midst of. So you have nothing but gratitude that you've been claimed at this point in your lifetime by something that seemed in retrospect to have been patiently waiting for you while you made all your uh, mistakes <laughs> and, and then brought all that skillfulness of being able to make those mistakes to the bedside. That's kind of how it began. Did you feel that sense of purpose again when you started doing speaking engagements and uh, these type of musical events? Mm. Well, on the speaking thing, that was involuntary, to be honest. It was... Uh, like I'm a shy person by um, character and by predisposition. So the idea of occupying center stage by myself and drawing attention to myself was not my idea of a good time. Not then, frankly, not now either, although I'm coming around to enjoying it. But um, I, I suppose it was this, that I realized that it was the way by which one spoke and what one said and what one didn't say uh, when with a dying person, it became a transferable skill when you were in front, for example, of a professional audience. And that rather than change the tone, which is what most people did when they were in front of a professional audience, they, were, mm -hmm. they imagined they were there with um, mutually informed people of equal capacity and, and so on. And this was simply not the case. I mean routinely in a professional audience, I was in the presence of people who basically unawares were trafficking in the death phobia they thought that they were um, contending with. And when, it, when a glimpse that it was one of those emperor, emperor's new clothes moments, mm -hmm. you know, the guy's actually butt naked and not very attractive. <laughs> and that's, that's what came to me at the time. I'm not, I should say, I'm not condemning anyone individually or personally because people are trying to make a living. Often they're doing the best they can. But in the medical field, the pressure 
to conform and to be to be recognizably comforting will confound any efforts you make to try to contend at the cultural level with what is really bedeviling the end of people's days. You just will be bought and sold. And if the drug reps don't get you, uh, the desire to be recognized as being helpful will get you. And I don't know why I was built slightly differently, whereby that temptation to be well thought of kind of short-circuited my understanding of what was necessary. But it, but it never came to me that way, I guess. And, you know, I can only credit the people I learned from before those days to be able to say that I came to that time with a sense of how I could be satisfied by doing the job that did not come from being um, highly thought of necessarily by the people around me. So because of that, I was able to, let's say, take on a few of these enormous dilemmas um, without hoping everybody was with me every step of the way. And they weren't, as it turned out. And it was a time-limited arrangement because you're not going to call into question <coughs> the professional practice of physicians inside the system for very long, but they're not going to mobilize and see to it that uh, you know a, a full day did not include your presence in their lives. And that's what happened ultimately. But in the time that I was there, I, I was able to be dangerous in the absolute best sense of the term. That means I was able to wonder about these things oftentimes with an audience who ostensibly were inclined at least to be unsure about their practice, even only for a few minutes. And I was able to credit that uncertainty as being a professional skill to doubt your work. And, uh, you know, this is the first casualty of being a professional more often than not. But in the deep, dark recesses of the, you know, the privacy that, it, that professionalism does not intrude upon, um, that doubt is there and it lives there and it needs to see the light of day. You know, and the way I would, used to say it in the business is we got to stop talking about how to do our job better and start talking to each other about what we think the job is that we're actually doing. And you might find this absolutely incredible, but I'm here to tell you that nobody wanted to have that conversation, hmm. not inside the business. What are we actually doing? How do we know that that's what we're doing? What's the relationship between what we're doing and what dying people expect from us and their families? I mean, as rudimentary as that might sound to you, I could not get those questions on the front page of our professional development repertoire. And so I had to choose at some level. And I, I chose, well, the end users of the service over the people who are delivering the services. And I doubt that I've been forgiven, but um, maybe at some level, I hope that, that they, would, they would find some sort of retroactive merit in the willingness to, to do the things I was pleading for at the time. I don't need anybody to agree with me, but if they just think about it, uh, that would be something. And uh, well, I'm not holding my breath and I, I'm not working in the death trade full time anymore anyway. So I'm an outsider and probably my whole, all my views are dated for those of you who are saying it's much better now. All I would say to you is you're probably right. I don't believe that, but you're probably right anyway. Well, and it still doesn't hurt to ask the question, I think. 
Oh, it does. Oh, it does hurt to ask the question. If it was easy, people would be doing it. Fair enough. You could go for, you could go bigger and or go home and say this. You know, if the system as we know it today was viewed by the majority of people to be some kind of disaster, it would not be the system that it is mm-hmm. today. If it was recognized by the people who are working in it, what it does to people, it wouldn't be what it is. The truth of the matter is, the insanity of the thing works. And that's, it's really hard to take that in. But it works at many, many levels. And the principal one is customer satisfaction, because that's the business that most of them are in. They're providing to the patient or the customer or the consumer what the consumer wants. And you know what that's called in psychiatry? Folie de deux. That means the madness of two. That means you can co-conspire with someone. And if both of you are happy, you decide that's the indication of merit if both of you are satisfied. But what if both of you are satisfied robbing banks or raping people? What would you call it then? You call it sociopathic behavior. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm saying. It's complicity masquerading as compassion. So is it hard? Hell yeah, it's hard to surface that as a sustained thing to wonder and be troubled by. And I think, uh, well, what scares me about the health industry is is the drugs. I mean, when you say to, um, you know, both people are happy, if I've given somebody a drug and they feel as though at that moment that they're happy in that short term, then we've achieved that. But in the long term, is that what needs to be done? And how does that reflect the the industry itself and changes that need to be made? Because that pill should never have needed to have been given. I hear you. And you could certainly have a, a talk about the pills. We could have yeah. a talk about euthanasia, which is an extension of what you just said. But let me let me give you a feel for it where it's not quite as, let's say, spectacular. Mm-hmm. It would come down to this. And this is a routine request I get to this day. And it goes like this. We just did a screening of Reef Walker in, in Oaxaca in Mexico. And this question came up uh, afterwards. So my father's dying. Yes. And, you know, I'm 37 years old. And we've had a pretty good relationship. Okay. Now. He refuses to talk about his dying with me. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is, how can I honor my father and his wishes and his way of going through this while at the same time feeling useful and supportive to him and and having an ability to believe that I have, you know, faithfully uh, served him according to some of the things you've written about in Die Wise, etc. And I have to say, well, you can't. And there's a stunned silence in the room. And I'd say, no, obviously you can't. Here's why. Because you cannot have a meaningful uh, dialogue with your father about his dying while respecting his utter refusal to talk to you about it. Now, can you? (laughs) As a grown-up, no, you can't. So then what does it deliver you to? This. If you want to have, it won't be a dialogue with your father. It'll be a monologue. and It'll be a diatribe. And it goes like this. Dad, I'm going to get one chance to say this, I think, and then you'll banish me from the room. So here goes. You dragged my ass into this world with mom, didn't you? 
that's right. That's what you did. And you became a father as a consequence of my appearance on the scene. And you're still a father. You're dying, but your fatherhood is intact. And my presence here in your room is all the proof you'll ever get. Now, here's what I want to tell you. You do not have the right as my father to keep from me the extraordinary and often enormously challenging sorrows and heartbreaks that you're going through right now because you are you're a thief masquerading as a father and you're stealing from me what that when it's my turn that this is the example i have to turn to and you call this fathering so at some level that's the 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 content that will i think do something about this insane expectation that you can quote unquote respect somebody's decision to absolutely withdraw from you and at the same time engage them in discussing that withdrawal mm-hmm. no you can't can't it's one of the, it's one or the other you just fold it up and say well he's going to die silent and i'm going to call that respecting him or you say to him you got one chance and your death does not belong to you dad your death is entrusted to all of us and you're the only one who's not going to live the consequences of how you die and you have an obligation to know that well of course this is all uphill and upstream isn't it in a culture that believes that you own the architecture of your life rather than you're entrusted with it and that the consequences you know spill out madly in all directions from what you do and you can't control those things but you can you can perform responsibly being aware that there are consequences to what you do that you do not intend and that's what a grown up is mm-hmm. and that's how elderhood functions you see it's not the realm of i didn't mean it that's not what an elder is an elder is it doesn't matter that i didn't mean it but it's come into the world as a consequence of something i did anyway how shall i now proceed and i heard you speak about this on an, another interview too and i really thought that was very impactful when you speak of the consequences of your d- death what you do leave behind and what that means for everybody afterwards and how that should impact all of your actions before that but once again i think that really pushes against what seems to be the overarching narrative of western culture which is me 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 and i have the freedom to uh, do what I want, um, and it's up to you to decide what those consequences to decide what you do with it. And it's not my fault if the consequence of what you, of how you you feel about it. Yeah. And it, it seems like there it it seems like it's it's there's got to be some sort of space in the center of that. Is that true? Oh, not in the center of it. I think you got to you got to see the thing for the the sort of fetid ditch that it is, <laughs> and the idea that you can be somewhere in that ditch. And, and, and drink from it and still be okay, that's kind of nuts. Uh, I think the whole, th- look, you remember this? You're probably old enough to remember this song. It's my life and I'll do what I want. Yep. I mean, that's what it was called. And that, that's going back to the mid-60s, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's more true now than it was when they sang it. It's, look, the truth is, the demonstrable truth is that it's not your life. I mean, what mm-hmm. makes it a personal possession? Right? The fact that, that there's this isolated being called you, 
like some kind of snowflake apparition, the, the, the never before seen thing in the universe and all of time called you? I mean, you're made of the same stuff that everybody else has been made of. How could you be so particular and unique? And why would you want to be, just by the way, mm-hmm. that you're completely unapproachable by your fellows because of how radically uh, like yourself you are and how unlike anyone else you are? So there's a beautiful little piece of etymology I stumbled across a year or so ago that is really useful at a moment like this in the discussion. And it's, it's the etymology of the adjective awake. Now, we both know how the word is used today. It's the mm-hmm. opposite of asleep. Or if you're talking slightly more metaphorically, it's a kind of um, that you've come to intellectually or existentially or morally or religiously or spiritually and so on. And uh, then you become a life coach. I guess that's how it works. So here's the etymology, and it has nothing whatsoever to do with the word as it's used today. So it's an it's a, uh, old English word. It's an Anglo-Saxon word. <coughs> Excuse me. So the, the prefix, uh, unlike most Latin and Greek words, doesn't mean un or non. or It's not the negating prefix, that A in the front. It means of or sort of pertaining to, or being being gathered into. It's, it's it had a prepositional tone to it. And don't go to sleep now, This folks who are listening. You know, grammar, grammar counts. Mm-hmm. You use it every day, more than you use your car or your smartphone, or your smart-ass phone, as I call it. <laughs> so, so, you know, bear, just bear with me another minute. Yes. So, and then you have this root word, wake. And we use this word in two places fairly commonly. And one of them is the thing that happens after you die, right? We know what that mm-hmm. is. You don't have to be Irish or Italian. You can still have one of them things. But you have to be dead. So for those of you, those hippies out there, the new age people who think you can be at your own wake and call it a celebration of life, well, that's a shell game. It ain't. It might be a celebration of life, but you don't get to be at your own wake. Let's just be clear. Without a death, it's a friggin' party. That's what it is. Yeah. Okay, so something's got to end. And if it's your wake, you're the one that ends. And that ending is the occasion for the thing. So that's one meaning. And the other meaning of wake, of course, is you ever been in water, in a canoe, or even Mm -hmm. when you're swimming. And as you make your way through the water, you look behind you. And lo and behold, there's that thing. That's the word we use for it. Wake. So if you put this word back together, the condition of being awake has nothing to do with the way it's used today, it simply means this. If you're awake, you have been gathered in to the web of consequence that emanates from everything that you have done and everything you haven't done and everything you've said, everything maybe you should have said or maybe shouldn't. Everything that you meant, it's it, you get the, the, the notion mm-hmm. here. The notion is, that being awake means to be gathered into an understanding that you didn't get a vote on, that you're only coming to realize now seemingly fairly late in the day and maybe a feeling of too late comes, like there's too much consequence now, there's too much water under the bridge and so on. But the purpose of awakening to this understanding is the purpose of inhabiting responsibly this this um trail of consequence that you've put into motion. That's what it really means to be awake. It means to understand that you have 
our responsible responsibility, excuse me, to participate in it, not to control it so much, but to participate purposefully and meaningfully with a high degree of conscience, as well as regret and all those other things. And if you bring to that to bear upon your days, it seems to me that you're flirting with the capacity to be an elder, you see, by vir virtue of the willingness to proceed this way. And so, um, you know, I'm all for wakefulness once it's understood that it's not a recipe for being free mm -hmm. from what you did or didn't do and, and leaving it to others to mop up after you. Not at all. And, and, and this is why the word wake uh, from the funereal sense of the term is so apt, you see. It's so, it's yeah. so proper because it literally means everyone else is now standing in the full and complete web of everything that you did, which has found its conclusion now. And we are living the consequence of you passing away from among us. And that's the last thing that you put into motion on the way out. Wow. Stephen, I, I, honestly, I could speak to you for hours, uh, and I appreciate the time that you've given me, but our time together is coming uh, close to an end here. Um, I want to thank you so much for, for taking some time to speak with me. I do have one thing that I do at the end of each one of these um, that I'm a little scared to ask you because I think oh, you might is be... Is it a favorite food thing or something? Sorry? Is it a favorite food thing or something? Ah, uh, similar to that, I guess. All right, go ahead. It is, it is called Read, Watch, and Listen. And mm -hmm. what would you suggest people read, watch, and listen to? Wow. Well, it would be bad form to mention anything I've done, I think. Oh, I'll already tell them to do that. Okay. Well, I'll leave that stuff out. Yeah. I did my best. It wasn't much, as the old man said. Well, um, you listen to anything that Leonard Cohen managed in his lifetime. Uh, you can't go wrong. Absolutely. He is, he is the kind of, and I don't say this in any diminishment, he is the kind of spiritual hallmark greeting card company. If you got an occasion, he's got a line. I mean, that's how skilled he was. So, so I just recommend to, to all Canadians to commit to memory a, ha a good half dozen of his songs, especially the ones that you find either objectionable or that you can't understand. Things that's, are going to slide, slide in all directions. There you go, man. It won't be nothing you can measure anymore. There is the a blizzard of the world has crossed the threshold and it's overturned the order of the soul. And when they said repent, repent, I wonder what they meant. I think that song has been one to me that wasn't a huge favorite of mine of his early on, but it's become really big to me as of recent. And I still okay. try to figure out all of it. It's a grown up song, man. That's why yeah. it's, a, it's not for teeny boppers. I mean, that song will lay you low the first time you hear it and then it doesn't get any better. It just gets truer. The more you listen, it does. And, and you dissect those lyrics and, and you find examples of everything that he says in the world that we are currently in. Um, and uh, absolutely, his music is incredible. His books are incredible. Um, mm -hmm. And I actually got the chance to see him live once, and that was a uh, near-religious experience. There you go, man. So many yeah. people say that. Yeah, it was a beautiful some, thing. Some dude from Montreal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if he can do it, what are we doing? Well, I think you're doing it. 
from the looks of it, man. You're gathering people around you, and you're affecting and changing their lives. I, well, I see it in the faces. More importantly, I got a band, though. Don't let's let's not leave that no. out. I got. How did that happen? And, and I know we got to stop here, but no, just you, saying, you know, you could listen to the music of Gregory Hoskins, who's who's the kind of musical director and co-conspirator in the Knights of Grief and Mystery. Mm-hmm. And Gregory Hoskins is an unsung singer, and in other words, he's a Canadian trying mm-hmm. to make a go of it in Canada. He's been at it for 30 years, and his music is the kind of emotional backbone of these nights that we do and the tours that we do. So I'd recommend listening to him, and uh, between the two of them, your life uh, is bound to take on a hue that you never imagined possible. Yeah. And and if you get a chance to anyone listening to any of the shows around, Nights of Grief and Mystery, it is a beautiful sounding experience from the recording that I've listened to. And I hope to one day myself get to see it in person. Um, definitely check that out. And you have some dates coming up uh, this summer of the uh, come of age tour in Ontario and BC. So that one's going to be more focused on what we've talked about today. Yes, it will. Mm-hmm. And that I think is also uh, incredible. I, I wish there was a Fort McMurray date on that. Cause that's where I'm currently located. Um, And I think that there's a lot of people up here who would find a lot of value in what you have said. So I'm hoping, at least through listening to this, I can bring them to uh, your books and the the movie and and everything else. So, Stephen, once again, I must thank you for your time. Uh, Thank you for participating in this with me. And I hope that you have a wonderful uh, rest of your tour uh, and rest of your time. It was an honor to be asked. I appreciate it myself. Thank Thank you. you.